Welcome everyone to another episode in the Shared Ireland podcast series. Today our guest is an Irish human rights activist and author. He is a senior advisor at the Washington DC based NGO Human Rights First and an advisory board member of the Gulf Center for Human Rights, a visiting scholar at Fordham University Law School in New York and he's a prominent human rights voice on Twitter. It gives Shared Ireland great pleasure to welcome along Mr. Brian Dooley. Welcome, Brian. Thanks very much for having me. No problem. Brian, just um, before we go any further, I'm going to um, ask you to put you on the spot. Um, what's your favourite song? There's no question that the greatest song in the world <laughs> and the history of humankind is Danny Boy. Because, Danny Boy. because oh. it can be sung uh, by people in the shower, by people in pubs, um, at huge uh, orchestral concerts, it's it's a, a song for almost every occasion. Yeah, no greater song ever written or sang well or sang badly. An excellent choice, may I say so. Oh, Danny boy, the pipes, the pipes are. From glen to glen and down the mountainside. Brian, could you maybe give our listeners a little bit about your background and early years and how you arrived at this point in your life? So I uh, was born and brought up in South London. I was a teenager really in the, the 70s and early 80s. Uh, what was happening in the north of Ireland um, influenced my life and I think a, a lot of Irish, other London Irish kids' mm-hmm. lives. Uh, clearly, it was a very different experience from you know growing up in in Ireland, north or south. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it mattered a lot to some of us, it mattered less to to others of us with the same uh, background. Uh, but I grew up in you know what I thought was a pretty Irish environment in London you know I, I played GAA I went to Irish music hall uh, music uh, clubs um, virtually all of my school friends had at least one and usually two Irish parents and both your parents were Irish is that correct Brian? yeah both my parents were Irish from from Wicklow and from Kerry mm-hmm. um, in fact I'm, I met a kid a kid you know we're in our 50s now but a kid I went to primary school uh, with the other day and we were talking about somebody else who'd been in our class and uh, and I was describing you know this this other kid David, and uh, and my friend said oh he was the English kid mm. you know and that was like a rarity right mm-hmm. in our primary school nearly everybody had two Irish parents there was there were some kids who, who had Polish or Italian parents a couple of kids who uh, had parents from Nigeria but really the you know the, despite this being London in the sixties and seventies you know the kid who had English parents was like the oddity there yes I understood. Mm-hmm. So so I grew up there, um, and then um, I really failed my uh, exams at school, uh, and without much prospect, I was uh, turfed out really uh, to go and live with my uncle uh, in Africa. Uh, I knew he was a priest, and uh, didn't really know very much more. And it turns out he was a priest 
in uh, South Africa. At, uh, at what age, may I ask? You? I was eighteen. Okay. Uh, so I went to live with him for a year um, in uh, in South Africa, and he was parish priest of a huge, what was then called a black township. Uh, so he and I, a um, couple of nuns, were the only um, white people in this hundreds of thousands um, black township. And it was really, I mean, uh, a, a shocking and uh, transformative experience for me. I mean, I'd, I'd, I think I've been on a day trip to France once. Otherwise, I'd only ever really been to, uh, to England or Ireland. You didn't think of uh, following in your uncle's footsteps? During the priesthood road? You know, I have to say that, you know, during the time I was there, uh, I saw him, some other priests, uh, nuns, actually several Irish nuns, and, you know, looking back, they were the most uh, satisfied, rewarded, happiest people in their work. Uh, and so, you know, over the years, I've tried to think that you know what what i've done isn't necessarily a vocation mm -hmm. uh but but there's a god i'm really lucky to be doing this uh element of my work which they had in theirs and what did you how did you fill your time throughout this oh period? so i i did all sorts of uh i mean things that now seem very odd uh there was a maternity clinic uh then you know i helped out there weirdly um i taught in the high school there, mostly I taught English uh, in the high school, but you know, it was alive with, as you can imagine, sort of simmering insurrection there. Uh, the, the teenage kids and young people, in fact, people of all ages were at at some level, you know, chafing against, struggling against the apartheid. And that, this was 81, 82, you know, and it went on for another, another decade. Mm -hmm. uh, so I saw, you know, uh, up close really yeah. like what, what it was like day to day wise mm -hmm. uh, for people you know the nonsense of queuing in different uh, queues at the post office and the separate toilets and the separate benches and all that was, was the sort of the, it, it really sounds just hearing you saying that now it sounds as if that's totally alien like but obviously as you said it's not that well, long ago thank god it, you know, it does seem like a, a different world and it, you know I guess it was a different world although not that different from you know the US in, in, the, in the 50s yes um, and and that and that was you know what was called the the petty apartheid stuff. I mean the the really more brutal stuff was you know the, the just the systematic oppression of people, categorization by race and all that. Do you think obviously that had an influence in what you went on to do later in life then mm -hmm. uh, through your you know human rights? Yeah, work? it it did, and and um, I, I guess also you know after having that very odd experience there at a young age you know it, 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 i think it would have been hard for me to to want to do you know a, a more normal job i guess mm -hmm. again looking for that sort of satisfaction that i saw other people having whether they were um political operators there or, or revolutionaries or even you know in their own way the the priests and nuns here mm -hmm. i noticed um something that you said there in your answer that when you left school in england that you, you basically had no qualifications, is that yeah, correct? Barely, barely, yeah. But then you went on to teach English in <laughs> South Africa. Sorry. So it was basically you were just teaching English because you spoke English. Because I spoke English. And that, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
Yes, that's right. In fact, you know, I had passed what was in those days O level English. Yes. And then weirdly, you know, then I found myself teaching actually one or two of the same books, some of the Thomas Hardy stuff. It was all it was all very strange. But yeah, I mean, my only skill as far as there was 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 that I was a native English speaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good enough qualification. Wow. <laughs> Brian, um, your work as a human rights activist and defender of human rights activities, uh, as you have already alluded to there, at the age of eighteen. Uh, took you to South Africa, and I guess your work has taken you all over the world. Uh, lobbying governments on human rights abuse in Bahrain, Egypt, Kenya, Syria, and even here in the north of Ireland, just to name a few. Uh, what would you list as your greatest achievement to date, Brian? And I, I, I know some people are hesitant to answer that question because they're maybe going to be patting themselves in the back, but it's not meant like that. What I guess, you know, when you look back in your life to date, what are you, you know, most proud of? Probably, It's it's hard to answer, not out of modesty, but because <laughs> I really don't know, Yeah, uh, you know, exactly what... I guess then, uh, what give you most satisfaction? Yeah, it's hard to know really what you're responsible for, like what, you know, you can legitimately yeah. claim credit for. I guess the very small things... Um, in in the grand scheme of things, some small things really uh, are satisfying. You know, when I meet somebody who uh, who's been in prison and you know I've I've campaigned for their release and they get out. Now it's it's never just me. You know, of course you have a team and a network behind you. Yeah. Uh, but you know, sometimes I, I've I've been like one of the first people to to campaign for them or. Uh, they come out and they say, you know, when we were in prison, um, this happened relatively recently, we were in prison in uh, in the United Arab Emirates for a couple of years, uh, a couple of fellows, a father and a son, and something I'd written about them and how, you know, the, the torture that they'd undergone in prison, um, that article somehow was smuggled into the prison and, and circulated, you know, among the prisoners, and, mm-hmm. and they, you know, said what a great lift it gave them, and that... Um, that was very satisfying to know, mm-hmm. you know, even on on a sort of a small, even a temporary, sort of emotional level that you're giving somebody a bit of encouragement uh, in an otherwise very bleak day to day. I guess, I guess just even listening to your answer there, even coming from a human level, what greater achievement is it to gain someone's freedom? Because our freedom is everything. <clears throat> It, you know, and, you know, let's be honest, most of the time it doesn't work. And yeah. uh, when it does work, it's not me doing it on my own, mm-hmm. right? But, it, you know, it, it can work, yeah. I hadn't planned to ask you this, but my mind is racing here. Right. I just want to tell you, had you ever any experiences of people that were on death row? When I worked um, at Amnesty, which I did for... 15 or 16 years uh, I did some work there on um, the death penalty mostly in the US yeah and more recently too um, there were people in uh, in Bahrain which which has unfortunately started to uh, resume executions after a, a long time and that is very tough you know because of course it's you know if, if you fail there in terms of you know having somebody released or their sentence commuted then you know, they, they, they get executed uh, that's very difficult, and I, and I know that there are people within the the human rights world who sort of specialise in mm-hmm. um, in death penalty cases, and I I think really that's you know among the hardest things to do. Oh, it must be just crazy. Yeah. It really is because again, when you're trying to obviously defend these people, 
it's only natural that you would start to build up a bond with them, you know, listening to their case and stuff. It, it also, though, looking back, you know, over over many thirty or something years, I've been doing this sort of stuff. Um, it is, I guess, one of the success stories generally. How how many countries now have abolished uh, the death penalty? Mm. Uh, the US, of course, is you know one of the big exceptions there. China to Iran, um, but compared to a generation ago, clearly the, the the tide is moving absolutely in the right way there. Yeah. Very good. I could actually talk to you for hours about that because it, it fascinates me that whole getting inside somebody's mind and you know trying to see. But anyway, that's for another day. Brian, in 2017, Human Rights First organization HRF published a paper uh, authored by yourself which outlined details of the intimidation of human rights lawyers in the north of Ireland, particularly those working on legacy cases relating to the conflict here. Can you explain to our listeners what prompted you to write this paper and, I suppose, what were its findings ultimately? Well, it made a lot of sense for, uh, <clears throat> for my organisation, Human Rights First, to, to do that because years ago we used to be called actually the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights. Mm -hmm. And in those days, in the 90s, we did uh, a fair amount of work uh, here in the north of Ireland um, again, clearly, you know, the clue in the name, the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights, on, on a sort of a lawyer-to-lawyer -lawyer basis. Mm -hmm. um, and really right from the start were um, campaigning for uh, uh, justice for the Finucane family uh, and closely um, associated with the Rosemary Nelson case too. And just for any of our listeners that maybe aren't familiar with the Finucane family, you're referring obviously here to... Uh, Belfast solicitor Pat Finucane, who was murdered by loyalist paramilitaries, and there is the, um, the collusion aspect of this case, uh, suggesting that the British government aided and abetted with loyalist paramilitaries in Mr. Finucane's death. That's right, and so since um, that time, over 30 years ago now, uh, the Lawyers Committee later became the Human Rights First has, has been calling with the Fanuka family for a full independent inquiry into what happened. So <clears throat> we ourselves had had a history uh, of working on some of these lawyer, human rights lawyer uh, related cases. And then a few years ago, in the context of uh, legacy cases, um, the certainly not physical attacks or murders, thank God. <clears throat> but certainly smears online and and rhetoric from um, mainstream conservative politicians in Britain, including Theresa May. I, th I think I think you know th this is the most surprising element for many people. Obviously, not myself, born and bred here, well used to this. But that you know, it wasn't just you know an odd tweet or a Facebook message from faceless trolls. These were elected representatives from a British establishment that were hampering, doing everything that they could to clearly obstruct any proper judicial review and also trying to nearly blacken and tarnish the solicitors and lawyers that were trying to assist the Finucane family. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, and, and not just those working on the Finucane case. And again, in, in, a, in, a, in an international context, if you like, uh, is the sort of work that we would do in other countries, whether it's you know, Egypt or Kenya. Human rights lawyers um, are you know, among the, the priorities for us to try and, and you, work with. You go wherever you see justice. Right. Needs and I mean, I, I'm just back from uh, from Hong Kong, where you know, very similar now, people who are 
uh, defending the protesters in Hong Kong, the lawyers there are starting to get smeared online and, and in fact physically attacked. We'll touch on Hong Kong later on, yeah. So, so in the north of Ireland, you know, this clearly has been an issue for a generation. Uh, and then in 2016, 2017, you know, some of the, uh, the British tabloids picked it up again, conservative backbenchers and frontbenchers mm-hmm. picked it up again. I think in, in the British psyche, it, that issue is mixed up too with um, what happened uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq. Yes. And so while the, the experience here is separate, it's certainly associated, I think, in the mind, not that I can speak for the mind of the British establishment, but I think uh, it, it's part of that package with prosecutions of British soldiers. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm also very worried that given the high possibility of the Tories winning the upcoming election, uh, they will pass legislation trying to grant some sort of immunity to former British soldiers. Uh, and if they do, then, you know, I think that it, it will um, it will be right for organisations like mine and others around the world to you know, try and try and fight that because, you know, certainly one aspect of that will be, again, uh, vilification of the lawyers who are trying to bring these cases. Just, just you mentioned there, Brian, about the, the possibility of um, British soldiers, their, their forays into other countries around the world. And um, do you believe there should be an amnesty for all combatants in a conflict situation? Um, and I suppose particularly, um, should everybody be treated the same? Or should the forces of law and order, which obviously soldiers, policemen, women are, should they be held to a higher set of standards? Or what's your general thoughts on that? I don't think anyone um, should be above the law. And that isn't just because you know, it's morally wrong if they're not. But I just think in a practical sense too, if you start exempting people from um, from the law and, and giving immunity to X or Y category of person, then it, it I think it destabilises and damages everybody's buying and, and trusting what the law means. So on a practical level, um, I think it's a dangerous thing to do. And on a moral level, I just think it's a wrong thing to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Brian, you are author of a book called Black and Green, uh, The Fight for Civil Rights in Northern Ireland. In the book, you suggest that the black rights struggle in 1960s America had a big influence on the civil rights movement here. Um, what evidence did you find in linking the connection between the two movements? So, uh, talking to civil rights activists from here, from that time, yes, um, it was pretty clear that they drew sometimes inspiration from what they were seeing and had seen happen in, in the US sort of in, in the 60s and 50s and uh-huh. 70s too, actually. Uh, you know, on, a, on that fairly obvious uh, level, you know, they, they adopted like the, the, the We Shall Ever Come anthem. Uh, you get um, tactics which they seen on the television. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember uh, Devlin Michalski saying to me, you know, we, we saw them on television, they sat down, so we sat down in yeah. terms of the protest. Um, but then you had other people in the civil rights movement here, Michael Farrell, for instance, who was, you know, leader of the People's Democracy, sort of the youth wing of the, the civil rights movement here, uh, actually having a, a, 
a fairly analytical approach to what was happening in the US. There was an equivalent in the US, a sort of youth movement, mm -hmm. uh, uh, student nonviolent coordinate, coordinating committee. And he was in touch with some of the, the, the young socialists in the US and started to more deliberately adopt tactics, you know, to try and uh, provoke um, uh, state violence. Yeah. Uh, and so there were, you know, it happened on a sort of a, a fairly obvious copycat level, but also on a, a, a deeper analytical level too. Uh, but what surprised me when I began researching the book um, was actually that the the links had gone back for like a hundred or more years before that. Yeah. Mostly the other way, where the the, the black struggle for uh, for rights going, you know, from the eighteen forties up through the nineteen twenties, and so on. Uh, had been enormously influenced by the Irish experience. Mm -hmm. So Frederick Douglass comes here in the 1840s, the, you know, the, the escaped slave, big abolitionist, he comes to Ireland, he comes to Belfast, goes to, to uh, Dublin, uh, hangs about with Daniel O'Connell. In the early 1900s, Marcus Garvey, the sort of uh, grandfather of, of black nationalism, uh, copies... Uh, some of the slogans, some of the tactics from the early Sinn Féin movement. Mm -hmm. uh, in the 1920s, there's this cultural explosion um, in New York in the Harlem Renaissance around uh, uh, black art and literature and so on, borrowing very heavily from, from the Gaelic revival here. Mm -hmm. And so up to, up to the 50s or 60s, most of that influence had been um, from Ireland on black America. Mm -hmm. And then... The late 50s 60s onwards it sort of reverses and you know i mean brilliantly you get you know that that tactic of uh, resistance um invented named developed uh in ireland in in the 1880s of the boycott mm -hmm. right and then in 1955 you get probably the world's most famous boycott the montgomery bus boycott yeah. you know adopted by um, black civil rights activists and then you know retransported back across the Atlantic here then in the late 60s and early 70s when people boycotted various uh, institutions and, and, and businesses here yeah. so it's been that, that two-way flow across the Atlantic for years and, and you know you still see it where um, the Bloody Sunday uh, commemorations uh, often have people still contemporary from from the black civil rights struggle whether it's in the black lives matter movement or whatever so th those those connections are very strong you know in, in personal political you know Bernadette Devlin outrages Irish America when she goes there in the early 70s by going and, and visiting the uh, uh, the black radical uh, Angela Davis in prison mm -hmm. um, so it, you know it, it, it seems at first glance maybe an odd connection but the more you look at it yeah. you know it seems like pretty natural and actually a very long lasting. Brian, we're, we're discussing your research um, on your book, Black and Green there. You're author of different books, but you have kindly donated Shared Ireland, one of your books here, and we're going to ask you to sign it, and um, we're going to actually give it away to one of our listeners. All right. <laughs> and um, so thank you very much for that. And um, I guess now is as good as time any just to bring this up. So if anybody is listening to this podcast and you like it, and give us a retweet uh, with a comment below the podcast, you will be in with a chance of winning Brian's 
<laughs> I, well, thank you very much. I'm not sure it's, a, it's, it's the best prize ever. If anybody wins the prize, I'm happy to come around their house and read it out to them page by page as, <laughs> a, as they lie in the bath. I think that's like, rather than expecting them to read it for themselves. Well, that's, but, okay. that's the best offer we've ever received from a guest. So um, just um, mm -hmm. you're, you do realise you're on record saying that. That's <laughs> And I ain't editing this out. Uh, just, just when we're speaking about your book, Brian, uh, where can people buy it if they, if they, if they aren't lucky enough to win it in this podcast? So it's just been uh, reissued. I, I, I read it twenty years ago, I think, uh, okay. and it's just been reissued. What you have there now is the is the new issue from Pluto Books okay. uh, in uh, in the UK. Yeah. Excellent. Very good. Brian, I read that you were an intern for Senator Edward Kennedy. Uh, can you tell our listeners what that experience was like and how that opportunity came about, I guess? I guess for younger listeners, they need to try to imagine, <laughs> yes. really try to imagine a world before the internet, uh, uh, yes. which really was, you know, as older people know, completely different. And so I was uh, at university in Washington for a year in the mid-80s. And I had already had this rather weird <coughs> experience of living uh, in a black township a couple of years before that, at the time when the anti-apartheid movement was really gaining, gaining great momentum in the US. And, uh, and Ted Kennedy and some others were trying to see whether it was possible to pass legislation um, uh, sanctioning the apartheid regime. Uh -huh. And so... Again, before the internet, you know, things were so much more difficult to, to find out. And so I had this weird bit of experience, um, having you know, spent a year living with, listening to, talking to uh, people more, you know, mostly of my own age, mm -hmm. uh, mostly Zulus. Um, and, you know, I, I roughly had an idea of, who their allegiances were to in terms of, say, black leaders, you know, whether it was the, the tradition of, of uh, Steve Biko or <coughs> Robert Subukwe or Nelson Mandela or Desmond Tutu or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that sort of information was much more difficult to come by then than it was now. So so anyway, again, you know, the, the micro piece of this that I could contribute was to... Um, uh, tell Kennedy staff and and the senator, you know, this is how I understand it. I mean, from you know, a couple of years ago, I was living there. This is what with your uncle. I this is what I was hearing. This is yeah. what I was saying. Um, and you know, a lot of the discussion at that time was around <clears throat> let's not uh, sanction um, uh, apartheid South Africa. Said some of the apartheid apologists because it's going to hurt you know the the black people the most, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, they were formulating counter-arguments to that. And, of course, most of the people I was speaking to uh, when I was there um, were asking for international uh, intervention. You know, they liked the, the cultural boycott, the sports boycott, yeah. and they wanted, you know, economic sanctions, even if it meant uh, temporary pain uh, for them. So, <clears throat> so I knew, you know, some odd little bits and pieces about the, the context there. Um, but again, I mean, I was an intern. I, you know, I, I played a, as I say, a micro piece of, uh, of this, um, and a lot of interns' days uh, in those days, unlike now, was 
delivering mail around to all of the other hundreds and hundreds of uh, office buildings. You know, you, you walk around those capital buildings now, the corridors, and it's very different. It used to be full, I mean, jam-packed of interns just with a stack of envelopes, you know, going door to door to door to door uh -huh. to door to door. You spend all day, literally all day doing it. Uh, and now, you know, it's press of a button. Now you have people doing that for you. Well, no, no, you don't need it anymore. You know, you like, I mean, I remember the first time I ever saw a fax was in Kennedy's office, and I thought, oh my God, this is like the world's never going to be the same again. You know? <laughs> what we're going to do with all this free time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I suppose we've maybe uh, covered my next lead-on part of the question. I was going to say, um, as part of your internship, you help contribute to what became the Anti-Apartheid Act in nineteen eighty-six, which imposed sanctions on the, on South Africa ultimately contributing to the end of the apartheid system and i guess you know that is a pretty historic piece of legislation for you to be involved it, it, in it, I, you know again I, I had a tiny tiny microscopic piece uh, of that myself but it was a big deal of legislation not only because i think it really did help to end apartheid mm -hmm. uh, it was always it was all also pretty seismic um in terms of u.s politics reagan President vetoed it, and then it was the first time uh, that an American president had vetoed a piece of foreign policy legislation that century. And so, the way that works, then, that if you know Congress passes a bill and the uh, the president vetoes it, it goes back to Congress, and they have to get a two thirds majority uh, in both houses to override that veto, uh, which I think many people thought wasn't possible. It meant that Republicans had to to come on board and really push it. And they did. And so it was a triumph really for the anti a huge triumph for the anti-apartheid movement um, within America mm -hmm. um, and a real um, defeat for Reagan, <clears throat> really staked his reputation on, on the veto and he'd lost it. Uh, most importantly, of course, was the effect that it had directly and also psychologically, I think, on on the, the apartheid regime. Mm -hmm. that, you know, now one of their biggest backers, you know, along with the UK, uh, which had been supporting them uh, for decades um, politically and, and before that militarily too, you know, suddenly switched sides. I think, you know, it was just a matter of time after that. And, and yeah. really, I think that the bill passed eventually in uh, 86 or so. And, uh, yeah, 86. You know, apartheid was over like five years later. Yeah. Very good. Interesting. Very interesting. Brian, do you think your internship with Senator Edward Kennedy give you an insight into the strong Irish American lobby that existed within the Washington movement, I guess. Yes, it it, it did, and it was different in those days. Yeah, of um, course, it was stronger. Um, in that, you know, there is there is certainly an Irish American vote now mm -hmm. uh, in the US, but it's it's not the force it used to be. No, um, a lot of that. Irish American constituency um, in the mid eighties, you know, which is was my first encounter with it. Really, I think lacked a fair amount of nuance. It's it's unfair to you know write off Irish Americans as unknowing and uninformed, uh, but uh, you know there was a lot of black and white to it too. You, you mentioned quite rightfully, so I agree with you entirely that the. Irish American influence isn't as strong nowadays. Mm -hmm. Do you believe the election of Mr. Trump played a part in that? No, I don't think so. I think it's really it's just demographics okay. uh, that 
um, you know, as as the generations go on, mm-hmm. um, you know, there, there's a distance from Irish politics. Yeah. Um, the troubles has more or less been taken away, although you know now it's 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 sort of coming back uh, as an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I no, I just think that that for a, if there is such a thing as a typical Irish American voter in the US. What's happening in Ireland is now, you know, lower on their priorities than it used to be a generation ago. Mm-hmm. Okay, Brian, you also wrote a book called "Choosing the Green." What sort of things did you explore in that book? Well, that was about really uh, trying to trying to trace the experience of uh, people who were born outside of Ireland, uh, Irish people who were born outside of Ireland, um, and their part in the struggle for Irish freedom. What you come under that category yourself? Well, I'm not sure that I'm really up there in the pantheon of people who've done much for no, Irish freedom. We're, we're born outside. But certainly, yeah. yeah they're second generation Irish. Uh-huh. Generation, and many of whom, you know, really did play huge roles. I mean, like De Valera, Thomas Clark, James Connolly. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the you know, most senior Republicans in the history of Ireland were born outside of Ireland. Yeah. And I think that was properly acknowledged uh really there was always a sort of a a skepticism uh i mean most commonly most obviously you know you get that skepticism around um irish soccer players who were not born in ireland you know you sound like me and uh, jack tartan bolted them all in <laughs> right and you know and there's a suspicion that yeah well you know if if, if you sound like me or you're playing for ireland because you're not, you're not good enough to play for england um that's you know, and, and you, you get that in the context of yeah. um, of cricket now, even too. Uh, the England B team. Yes, right. <laughs> so you know that whole plastic paddy thing. So I was yeah. interested in that uh, because you know of my own experience, but also going you know when I look back in the history of it, some of the most influential people, uh, uh, particularly Republicans, you know Margaret Skinner, Constance Markovich, these mm-hmm. people were, were second generation Irish too, uh, and then you know coming up to to culturally I guess more modern times although Sean McStephorn also you know mm-hmm. founder of the Parisian IRA second generation Irish um, but culturally you know whether it, it it surfaces or not in the experience of second generation musicians like you know the Smiths Oasis Elvis Costello uh, the Pogues of course all that I think is an interesting uh, Irish identity I'm funny when you when you mention their names uh, um I recently watched, which um, I wasn't intending to watch, but um, the Anton Deck. Um, you, oh, you, you maybe didn't see it, did you? No, no, I, I didn't see that. Uh, yeah, that traced their, their, I suppose, their roots and yeah. their, their heritage, and uh, both of them traced back to Ireland. Oh, right. Yeah. I, I mean, I saw in, on one of those Who Do You Think You Are series last year or so, uh, Boy George, you know, and it ends yes. up with him singing. Kevin Barry. That's right, prison, exactly, right? yeah. Uh, and, you know, for me, right, of course, you know, he, he would have grown up singing that as we did. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. you know, he, he sounds like me and not like you. That's right, that's right. Not that's singing. Right. I'm sure he sounds... <laughs> I can assure you he sounds a lot better than me singing. <laughs> Very good. Brian, in 2009, you worked in Gaza. <clears throat> what are your thoughts on Ireland prohibiting imported goods from occupied territories in Palestine? I think this is one of those areas that that Ireland um, really punches above its weight 
in a pretty impressive way. I mean, I, I, I you know, on and off over the years, I've done um, pieces of work in and around the, the UN or, or the EU. Uh, and the Irish government is very good at diplomacy. Um, I mean, given the, the size and the strength of the country. And so it, this is one of those issues uh, on human rights um, in Israel and, and uh, in Gaza and the West Bank that Ireland has been very good on. I saw actually today that Al Haq, Palestinian human rights organization, has just won a big deal prize for uh, its business and human rights work. So, I, you know, I think this is one of the areas that, that Irish people should be proud of uh, uh, in terms of how they're Government. I mean, I'm not particularly endorsing like the, the the current government, but I mean over the decades, yes. how the government really has uh, made a, a played a prominent role in the defence of human rights, and you know, and, and uh, I think President Higgins is has been great on this too. Recently, Sherrod Ireland um, conducted a podcast with um, Fine Gael Senator Neil Richmond, mm-hmm. and I guess I posed the same question to Neil, um, in on the back of the young Fine Gael, um, group mm. welcoming the Israeli ambassador uh, to Ireland and I, I guess that's the reason why I ask this question is because obviously the, the Irish as you alluded to even in past governments we always had a strong pretty strong stance on this issue but Neil seemed to defend um, the, the younger members within his party, um, I suppose, during a photo op with the Israeli ambassador, and it kinda, I thought it kind of flew in the face of what the general opinion of Irish people currently are. Maybe. I'm not, I'd be surprised if that was the first time that you know, there'd been such a photo op. No, uh, it certainly wasn't the first time. No. But but I also had seen, you know, I'd followed this on, on social media where some uh, MEPs uh, had left uh, the European Parliament before a, a pretty critical vote on uh, migrants' rights. Okay. Uh, a couple of months ago, and I was, I was pretty disappointed in that. Although they did, again, you know, all of this political decisions, I mean, whether it's in Ireland or in the US, uh, I mean, politicians you know, react to what the public think and and those politicians the MEPs who left before that vote uh, were um, faced some serious backlash on on uh, on social media and you know I doubt they'd do the same again mm-hmm. um, Brian you have covered as we've already discussed a lot of the world in light of your observations and experiences abroad what is your opinion on what needs to happen in Ireland and I guess particularly in the north So, you know, I don't come um, with any great expertise on this, you know, written a couple of books, but you know, I don't live here anymore. Yeah. Um, g- given that, I think if the, f- if the future is to be um, a united island, then I think the discussions for the practicalities around that uh, need to begin immediately. You know, if if we take the fall of apartheid as a as a, a success story, mm-hmm. um, or you know the, the the fall of the the Soviet Union 
as another big success story about that time. I think what helped in the immediate um, context after the, the, the radical change mm -hmm. was that some people had sort of blueprints of, well, here's what should happen now. So South, uh, in South Africa's case, they, the, the opposition uh, sort of already had like a draft constitution ready. And one of one of the NC's lawyers, Albie Sachs, was injured badly in a car bomb, and and you know while he was injured and and while recuperating, he began work on a you know which seemed at the time a sort of a fantasy constitution, uh, which really was the draft of the first and and brilliant um, constitution. And so I have seen some of these discussions beginning to happen now. But really, what would it mean, you know, if if in five or ten or thirty or fifty years we um, we're in a situation where there where there is one country on the island of Ireland. What's that going to look like? You know, um, is the capital going to be Belfast? I mean, you, you just need to start having these discussions, and it's just not too early to do it. And in fact, I think the earlier you start having these discussions, the the the, the more real uh, it becomes, and it helps to realise. Uh, but I, but I guess coming from a unionist stand on this. Mm -hmm. That possibly would be one of their biggest fears. If they actually decided to participate in this conversation, then it becomes real. Yeah. And it, from their point of view, mm -hmm. it would start to gather legs. And obviously, they want to remain within their union, which they're perfectly entitled to hold them aspirations. Sure. So this, for many, will be the biggest obstacle. And recently, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, there is a civic group called um, Ireland's Future mm. who penned an open letter to uh, Antisha Leo Bradker mm -hmm. where over a thousand people from all walks of life throughout the island and abroad, I might ask, America and mm. elsewhere, signed the letter. And basically th their, their one simple request is for the Irish government to help set up a citizens' assembly to discuss this very subject. And again, been living on social media, as I do, I'm yeah. sure, like yourself. Yeah. Some of the, which I guess if I put myself in the union of shoes for a moment here, mm -hmm. I can see possibly where they're coming from, is that they're afraid that the call for Leo to set up a citizens' assembly to discuss the possible reunification of Ireland, mm -hmm. that they're saying that the end game is already predetermined before the negotiation starts because there's only one subject on the table. Now, Ireland's future um, would, would, would say that's not the case. They want unionist participation, all different denominations, right. to have a stake in this conversation, to put their tuppence worth in. Let us hear what your fears and aspirations are. And then, and only then, will obviously all sides help to understand each other's concerns. Mm. What's your general feeling on, on the likes of Ireland's future, shared Ireland, and there's other groups out there what, what, what's your thoughts on, on these groups? Well, I don't think that Ireland or England, for that matter, can afford not to have various serious discussions start immediately about what it's going to be like in 50 years. Um, Ireland is, it, 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 you know, has, in a sense, been having this discussion for you know, 700 years, right? Uh, England really is, a, is entering an identity crisis now where it doesn't know is it going to be part of a union? 
uh, is Scotland going to break away? Uh, what's going to happen to the north of Ireland? Uh, and so, you know, and, and I mean, I've done some work in, in other parts of the EU too. You see plenty of other countries, Hungary, Poland, also going through an identity crisis, which, you know, Brexit is an expression also of, of this too. But anyway, in terms of what happens in Ireland, I think um, it's, it's a good and necessary idea. I don't think Ireland can afford not to start thinking um, at least medium term and, and really long term. And even if the discussion is, what's the island of Ireland going to look like, how it's going to be governed, what's its economy going to be uh, in 30 or 40 years from now? Like, those discussions have got to happen. Or else what? You, know, you, you avoid that discussion and, and then you know, other, other events uh, overtake and influence and, and outside forces then make those, discussions, make those decisions for you. I guess one of them, <clears throat> the arguments for pro-unity voices here would be looking at Brexit, mm. something that reared its ugly head in 2016 and still consumes us to this day. Yeah. And um, so I guess we have to look at this most recent example and see how divisive it was. And I think if we trace it all back, it's because nobody really that voted in that referendum knew really what they were voting for. Now, I'm not obviously painting that broad picture, mm. but speaking to my own local people where I live and other areas of Ireland, people, people simply weren't too sure, you know. So I guess having a conversation about something as big as a possible reunification of Ireland, mm. as you rightfully say, whether it happens in five years, 10 years, 20 years or whenever, it's only prudent, pragmatic, not to push this on to another generation. We must take responsibility for this now and ensure that no other generation has to go through what we are currently going through and have gone through and have the discussion. Right, so you know, if there comes a day when, when there is a vote um, about reunification, I mean, I think you know, a lesson from Brexit is people need to have an idea of what they're voting for. Right? If, if, if they vote yes for reunification, what does that mean in, in a way that you know, voting for Brexit really wasn't very clear what that meant. I think there's a, there's also something which um, none of us, or few of us anyway, certainly not me, really properly understand, which is at the root of, I think, Irish reunification and also um, much around the, the Brexit discussion, which is around the, the emotional pull of identity. I mean, you see Brexit often being argued and I think sort of irrelevantly in terms of economic benefit. You know, you get the whole thing about the line on, on the side of the bus with the, the money that the NHS is going to... And <clears throat> I'm not sure that, that... And I'm not a Brexiter, so I can't speak on behalf of them, but I'm, you know, I'm not sure that many people really were swayed that much by the uh, economics of it. You know, I think it's more of a, an identity thing. Somehow, for them, they are more British if they're out of the EU. And when I see some of these discussions about the North too, where um, people will, will, will say to, to unionists, look, you know, you, you will be, you know, £2,000 a year off per family, better off uh, under a United Ireland. Um, I'm not sure that's very persuasive. Well, Doug Beatty uh, said to Shared Ireland in a podcast we did with him, that would be like him saying to Jerry Adams, 
uh, jury, you'll be twenty thousand pound right. a year better yeah. off that's if not, you remain within the union. Exactly, it simply won't work. That's not the point. Yeah, yeah. That, so I think I think getting at that now, of course, the economy matters, and you know you don't want to do a country where where you know, it completely collapses. Um, but saying to people, you know, and all of this might be true, you, you'll be better off if you stay in or you get out or um, your, you know, your your freedom of movement to go and work in the UK or north to south or whatever will be enhanced. I mean, all those things matter a bit, but I think it's people, I mean, I think, you know, you saw reflections of this in the Good Friday Agreement to the, the way that those issues around identity were... Were I think fudged if, around. It I, worked. I, while I obviously agree with what you're saying, and it's very hard to determine what's going on in people's minds, mm. but um, there there is certainly from from what I can gather and listen to other people, there is starting certainly thinking within unionism now that you know thinking the economic way, you know, mm. one island, one economy, one health system, one education system, one police force, one of everything. Mm. So when you replicate something, obviously. It's, it's not as, a, as efficient, mm-hmm. it's not as cost um, efficient or nothing. So I, I think the, the tide is starting to come uh, with um, certain pragmatic unionists. Just before we get off this subject, Brian, do you mind if I ask, what's your whole stance? There has been talk from certain quarters that there was a unity vote to take place, that 50 plus one would not be good enough to win this vote. What's your opinion on this? I've seen 50 plus one not work um, well at all in in other countries. And I think that having a, a democracy, um, a strong democracy, is much, much more than either 50 plus one or 66 plus one. It's having the, the other parts of it I think which will protect people whether it's um, a strong independent media uh, certainly a strong independent judiciary if people can trust in those institutions uh, to protect them and their rights then I I think the the 50 plus 1 or or the 66 or 75 or or whatever you want to put it at matters less uh, personally, I think fifty plus one can work, but then you need you need some very strong checks and balances. Then that, that you don't get like a, a tyranny of fifty one, as you know happened in Egypt uh, when when they elected uh, first civilian president. I mean, yeah, he, he got majority. Um, he couldn't really didn't really govern properly. The other institutions of the state. Um, weren't strong enough. He didn't try to reform them, and he then, you know, in turn was ousted after a couple of years by a by a military coup. Uh, I'm not sure that happened in Ireland, uh, but I but I think that shouldn't be the only focus. Uh, Fifty plus one. I think that other other protections need to be um, really properly strengthened before a minority will accept uh, a majority verdict. Okay. Tell me this. How do you protect or how do you go about trying to ensure that a certain population heritage and rights and identity are protected? And what I'm referring to here is there's roughly a million unionists living in the north of Ireland. And if they were 
to be catapulted against their will, mm-hmm. uh, maybe with the consent of a few, into a united Ireland. The erosion of their identity has something that has come up time and time again mm-hmm. recently. From your opinion, what do nationalists need to do to ensure and reassure them that their identity will be cherished and protected in a new Ireland? Well, again, I'm unlikely really it would be much part of that conversation or certainly to be reassuring, in a position to be reassuring in this. But, you know, the basic thing is it shouldn't be for nationalists to decide what it takes, right? You know, in in this formula, it's unionists who ought to be saying, um, you know, even if their stance is probably never, but if it does happen, these are the things which which we would have to uh, insist on, and then the conversation be- can begin, rather than you know nationalists saying, okay, we'll give you we we'll give you X, Y, and Z, because you know you've seen no better place than than here to see what happens if you have a disgruntled large minority i mean it just doesn't work right yeah so you know and, and you talk about a million people coming in reluctantly i mean that already sounds like a recipe for unrest right you you've you know you've you've got to make it attractive enough and it's got to be a, sh- a shared enough uh a well, vision I, for the future to make I, it I think you're right there it's not up to one section of the argument that's not the right word to use but mm. to convince the other I think it's up to everybody to get around the table and project their own voice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, and you don't have to obviously have unanimity around it for it to work. Uh, but, you know, when, when you go back to the 50 plus, plus one thing, like what's the other, how unhappy the other 49 is is the, is the problem, really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A subject that um, no doubt will um, be discussed many times before this border poll takes place. Uh, Brian, we touched on uh, re- uh, very briefly before here. Recently, pro-democracy parties have won local elections in China. Mm. But what can they do in a place that doesn't run on democracy, in your opinion? So the, the democracy, uh, you know, as, as far as it does exist, uh, is really only an exception there in, in Hong Kong. Yeah. Very small. Um seven million people um and you know it's also another legacy holdover from the british empire and you know there was a special deal cut um with some similarities to to the way that that uh, the the issue of the north of ireland was dealt with a hundred years ago um where a deal was cut between china and britain 20 years ago that there would be this um one country two systems which is sort of what happened here for a while mm-hmm. uh, and the idea uh, the deal was between Britain and China that this one country two systems would last for 50 years mm-hmm. up until 2047 and then it would go fully fledged into the Chinese system yeah. but between now and then or between 1997 and then um, Hong Kong was guaranteed at least under this treaty to have some degree of autonomy it has its own its own currency it's again very importantly um, an independent judicial system to Mm -hmm. to China. It has a pretty cosmetic democracy where basically China picks two candidates and says, which of these one, which of these two do you want to be uh, the head of the government? And so the the democracy in terms of a voting sense is already pretty cosmetic. But 
what happened in the recent um, local district elections. And these, you know, are symbolic. I mean, they, they, the sorts of things which these local um, officials can do is less than, you know, councillors can do in, in Ireland or Britain. I mean, they can they can ask for, you know, zebra crossings to be changed or can we have some more street lighting? I mean, it's not power at all, but the symbolic value of people uh, using the ballot box to really reject the, the current government is a shock, I think, to the government and frankly also to the opposition. I mean, I was there a couple of weeks ago and people talking about the elections and even the most optimistic of the protesters that I was, I was speaking to uh, really didn't think that it would it would it would go this way. Now, you know, in terms of what it means, in terms of uh, seats won and the power, like virtually nothing in terms of what it means symbolically and as a message to the government, it's it's huge. And the government there is sort of stuck there between this huge power. You know, it sort of has to do what Beijing tells it ultimately, and yet now it it's obvious that the vast majority of the people it's governing, um, it's not governing by consent. Mm -hmm. And you've had six months of uh, protests, largely peaceful. Um, more recent weeks are certainly a, 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 large, a, a big step towards violence, mostly against property, but against some people. Uh, so, you know, where this goes in the next in the next three months or so, I don't know, but I can't see it, it just going away. I don't think that this vote was like a... <coughs> a safety valve for the opposition and now people have you know had their say and now they're going to go back and uh, uh, feel satisfied that they've sent the government a message and they're not going to protest anymore I don't think that's going to happen mm -hmm. Ryan where does Ireland fit into the ever changing political landscape of the world do you think there seems to be like I guess a battle going on between globalism and far right nationalism what's your thoughts uh Ireland has more or less uh, played a pretty deft game um, over the last 50 or more years. Uh, and compared to other European countries, and I don't think it's immune from this right-wing populism at all, uh, but compared to many other European countries now, it seems um, fairly safe from that. Uh, I mean, certainly there's a, there's a very strong centre-right um, energy in Irish politics. Uh, but I, I would be surprised if, if really a far-right movement gained ground uh, in Ireland. But even if it doesn't, uh, Ireland is still threatened by what is happening you know, in the rest of Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and, you know, you look around for allies, um, uh, that the Irish government may have looked at, looked to before, you know, some of the Scandinavian countries and Netherlands, um, they are battling some of this. I mean, you know, Denmark has done some shocking things lately. Absolutely. Um, um, you know, the, the very strong far-right strand of politics in, in the Netherlands. So I think internally I, I, I doubt that um, Ireland will be overrun by this sort of populism yeah. but I think it's hard uh, and harder for it to to stand with other European partners against what's happening say in, in Poland or Hungary or, or Italy or in France or now in, uh, in Britain because um, those who are on the good side of this mm -hmm. are, are themselves weakening mm -hmm. yeah 
What's your assessment of Bill Clinton, uh, Brian? And the reason why I ask that is because you have an office still in Washington. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess, come back to your Senator Edward Kennedy days. Do you think Bill Clinton and his administration then helped to bring about the Good Friday Agreement? Obviously he did, but yeah. to what extent do you believe? And to what extent also is that American link missing in today's environment, helping to maybe kickstart the negotiations to restore Stormont? Ah, okay. Um, I think Clinton played an essential role. His administration played an essential role um, in what happened here in the in the nineties. Um, that doesn't make him great, no more than it makes Tony Blair great. Although I think Tony Blair. Although in fairness, actually, John Major had also started to move uh, in that direction a bit too. Um, and, you know, one thing I think I've learned over the years is, is that, you know, there really are no heroes in politics, right? I mean, it's it, there's just a lot of grey and some hmm. fundamentally flawed people can, yeah. can do some really very good things yeah. now and again, right? Uh, but again, it, you know, the... The lesson I think there is that it was civil society in the US, just the civil society in the US had pushed the American Congress to finally take action over apartheid. It was civil society in the US, a part of Irish America, which really pushed uh, the candidate Clinton when he was running for president mm -hmm. uh, to take this up as an issue and, yeah. and to guarantee you know that, that, that he would take an interest in this and, and, and he would visa for Adam. Uh, so that was, you know, cleverly done by um, actually, you know, again, impressively, a pretty small number of Irish Americans. You know, that that as was then a sort of new generation of Irish Americans, Nile Dowd and others around mm -hmm. uh, New York, uh, latching onto Clinton in you know, a very smart way, and not exactly guaranteeing. Uh, that they could, you know, deliver however many millions of Irish American votes there, but certainly there was something in it for the candidate mm -hmm. Clinton. Uh, and there's a mix, you know, when when you you talk to most politicians, there's a mix there of of self interest um, and conscience. I mean, I don't think they're all amoral or immoral. Uh, nor do I think I've ever met a politician who's only powered by morality. Mm -hmm. Right, and so anyway, the, the ingredients were there. Um, in terms of you know, fatigue on the British side uh, to, of this thing just grinding on and on and on and, and you know, in Ireland too, um, with, with Reynolds and Ahern and, and, you know, individuals then like my Molum, all of that. There right, seemed to be a together. group of people that were the right fit at the right time and yeah. came together and got the job done, I suppose. And, and Clinton was one of those. Yeah. But again, behind Clinton, I mean, what motivated Clinton was... Um, not politicians, you know, it, it was local activists mm -hmm. who who were smart enough to be able to say to a politician, uh, you know, here's what ought to happen, here's how to make it happen, and here's what we can do for you if you do make it happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I'm going to do a lot of advocacy uh, uh, myself, whether it's in, in Washington or, or uh, with the UN or whatever, and, you know, they're the things you need to say, not just, you know, this is the right thing to do, but um, here's what's in it for you if you do it. And just the second part of that question that I asked you, 
Uh, is there a role for the current uh, American administration to play in trying to restore things in the North here again? I can't see um, the current uh, um, Trump administration doing that or wanting to do that. Uh, or, you know, if there's another Trump administration who being particularly interested in that. But I do think that although it's weaker now than it used to be, but the uh, the interest in Congress in in Ireland, North and South, is still pretty important. It is, yeah. Uh, and so I think, uh, I mean, you, you, the way you phrased your question there was, would the American administration play much role? I don't think so. Might the American, you know, government more broadly, as in Congress? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, Nancy Pelosi's talked about um, uh, the insistence on on. Respecting the Good Friday Agreement in the context of you know future trade negotiations and between no hard Britain border and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean part of that too actually oddly although th th there has been a decline I think of influence in the Irish American interest over the last generation, but in the last couple of years because of this, uh, it's it's woken up again a little yes, bit. Certainly. Uh, and now part of that I think is is um, politicians being empowered by you know, wanting to do the right thing. Uh, but also members of Congress who um, see this as an issue on which to beat Trump. I mean, mm -hmm. they may be you know, neutral or not care one way or the other about yeah. about Ireland, but this looks like a good stick to, to beat Trump. And, and so I do think that the US Congress is likely to play um, a fairly significant role in what happens here mm -hmm. uh, in the future. Okay, Brian, we're uh, just over an hour into this podcast and I have a few more questions. Uh, if you can bear with me, just on a wider thing, do you have faith in Britain and America at the minute with Boris Johnson and Donald Trump in charge of the reins? I, I mean, not like I'm a hundred, right? But you know, I mean, I'm old enough to remember various um, British prime ministers and American presidents uh, going back, I guess, to the late sixties, um, and. The Reagan Thatcher years were pretty bleak, mm -hmm. and they were, you know, they both defenders of apartheid, by the way. Yeah. Uh, and you know, you, you did which you don't have anymore. The real prospect, or at least the perceived prospect, of a nuclear war. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, yes. And you know, when I when I talk to younger people now, who you know, rightly I think are pessimistic about the way things are going in many countries. Mr. Gorbachev. And I, I mean, you know, a lot of things were worse in the 70s and 80s. I mean, not least in the north of Ireland, right? But, you know, across Latin America, across part of much of Africa, across the whole of Eastern Europe. Uh, and so generally, I think things are better. But that combination of, uh, of Trump and Johnson, I think, is, is potentially lethal, could be worse than the, the, the Thatcher-Reagan mm -hmm. uh, combination. Uh, but your question was, do I trust Britain or America? And okay, these with people, them too. Yeah, them. I mean, I mean, I guess you know, Britain and America have elected certainly Trump and look about to elect uh, Johnson. Um, but I still like to think there's a separation between you know American people and 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 their government and, and British people and their government. Mm -hmm. But no, this doesn't look good, does it? You know, if if <laughs> if we're looking at you know five years of of a Johnson-led uh, administration. Um, in Britain and, you know, another possibly five years of a 
Trump-led administration. No, ho- that can't I, be good. I was hoping you would um, say something and enlighten them there <laughs> that maybe I or our listeners have overlooked um, to give us a little bit more inspiration, but you, you haven't, unfortunately. No, I mean, you, know, you, you never know what might happen here or there, right? But I, I, I don't see much silver lining. Yeah, yeah. Don't think you'd find too many disagreeing with that in all this, Brian. Brian, what is required to create a truly shared Ireland, in your opinion? You know, I think part of the problem that that Ireland faces is um, an expectation, really, of a sort of a, an idealism, like a utopia. Um, and so, you know, for generations, for centuries, um, it's been in people's DNA that once there's reunification, in some people's DNA, once there's reunification, like, everything will be great. And whatever happens, like it won't be. No. So I think an acknowledgement that um, you know there is a better island out there, whatever it looks like, you know, reunified or not, or you know, I assume there are going to be some reemergence of these old formulas of you know some sort of federation of mm-hmm. the, the four provinces or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, you you even get talk now. I don't know from from which side this is coming but a sort of a, a scottish irish co you know greater cooperation mm-hmm. you know? Uh, maybe some sort of customs uh, but i think you know what's needed for a, for a successful shared island is a big dose of realism right about really what what can be done here it can be much better i think but if you expect it to be that super romantic devil era vision Emic vision, tone vision, like I, I, you know, I think you're on a loser. Mm-hmm. Give me the best bit of advice you've ever been given, Brian. Don't marry a snorer. <laughs> <laughs> Just repeat that in case anybody missed it. Don't marry a snorer. Now, is, is this your wife talking or is this you talking? So, <laughs> you know, I, I get asked to go and talk to university kids or high school kids or whatever. And, you know, when I was young, old men would come in and give me advice. And it was just useless. Like, I didn't really remember it. Even if I remembered it, it you know, it would have no relevance. You know, this nonsense you get of you can be anything you want to be. You know, you're, you're, the only, you're only limited by your own emotion. I mean, that's just not true. But right? you, you, by your answer now, you can maybe possibly change somebody's life. When, yes, when, when I can your save answer. somebody from the misery <laughs> of... So that's the only, but then again, you know, it's not foolproof. Like you can marry somebody who's not a snorer and they become one, right? Yes, this is very true. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I especially loathe, honestly, seriously, when, now when I when I go to talk to young people about what they should do, because our generation has just cocked things up for them, like in so many important ways, you know, politically, on the environment, financially. And so why any boomer is going to go around and tell a millennial, this is the way you ought to live your life. Mm-hmm. Like, we have no legitimacy mm-hmm. to do that at all. Very good, very good. Who do you admire, Brian? It sort of changes day to day, to be honest. Um, although... <laughs> Today you admire me, of course. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> uh, there are people, you know, that I think have stuck by incredibly principled um, positions in their life. I mean, clearly, because of the, the work I do, you know, I... I 
I know some of these people or come across some of these people thinking of people, you know, who have known that their their human rights activism is likely to uh, land them in jail, uh, mm-hmm. and and they've done it anyway. You know, people yeah. people I know personally in the Middle East or elsewhere. There's a guy in in the uh, in the Emirates, Ahmed Mansour. Um, you know, in, I met him in Dubai a few years ago, and you know, he fully aware that what he was doing in terms of reporting and documenting human rights violations was likely to end him in prison, and and there he is, sentenced to ten years in prison mm-hmm. in Bahrain. You know, Abdul Hadi Al Hawaja, uh, Najib Fatil, Nabil Rajab, these people doing very dangerous work, knowing it was dangerous. I mean, Egypt's all over the place. There are people to really admire, and I suppose most recently, because because it's freshest in my memory, uh, what struck me about the the protesters in Hong Kong is how young, and and I don't mean you know in their twenties. I mean like teenage young. Um, and a huge number of those, I mean, proportionally more than I've ever seen anywhere else in terms of protests, mm-hmm. a huge number of girls. And again, I mean, you know, girls like, like 15, 16, 17 year old. Uh, and so f- for them to be going out protesting uh, week after week, month after month, knowing how dangerous it is, uh, knowing where this might eventually land them, uh, you've got to admire that. Mm-hmm. I mean that that's that's just that's different from a one-off c- courage, you know, where you know brilliant. No, that is you see somebody jumping into the sea to save a puppy, or you know, pulling a child off a railway track. Um, for these people, very young to be committed like that over months and months and months and months. That, or, or in the case of the human rights activists, you know, over years and decades, that sort of courageous grind, I think, is is very impressive. Yeah. Okay, thanks for that. Okay, very near the end. Tell me this, Brian, truthfully. Have you ever listened to one of Shared Ireland's podcasts? Yeah. You have? Yeah. So you know the next question coming then, do you? Well, I don't know where we are in the list of questions, but go on. It's usually the one people dread the most. If you could invite three people, alive or dead, to your fictional dinner party, who would they be and why? That is horrible. (laughs) I, I... I want to know, so I worked for, for as an intern for Ted Kennedy, um, but I would like to see what all the fuss was about, about Bobby Kennedy. I wrote a book about Bobby Kennedy uh, years ago, but never met him. He, he was killed when I was five. Um, but I n- talked to a lot of people who knew him and, and none of them could really, by their own admission, sort of really explain what it was about him that they they were inspired by or or hated uh, or didn't like so there, there was a sort of an a weird otherworldly quality to him you call it That's charisma or whatever. yeah <laughs> uh, and so i quite like to 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 be able to meet him just to see what that's about really mm-hmm. um and then yeah, i mean there are all sorts of other people a bit like that you know who who are sort of famous for centuries and centuries in some cases um the 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 Prophet's granddaughter Zainab, you know, she she was marched in captivity uh, across to Damascus after l- losing a battle, and yet you know her example and inspiration still lives. You know she she's in captivity, in detention, and yet she's speaking out against oppression and against injustice. And what's and her name again, Brian? Uh, Zainab. Okay. okay. Uh, then you know, and some of those actually 
early religious figures uh, from the early Christian church. Like St. Paul is amazing to me. And so I've been involved in NGOs you know, for a long time and see that, and political movements, you see that infighting, you see the backstabbing, the egos, and it's incredible to me, incredible to me that St. Paul managed, you know, over the wishes of Jesus' mum and Jesus' like anointed successor, St. Peter, to wrest control for himself of the early Christian church. Mm -hmm. Like I want just in terms of internal power politics, mm -hmm. that's amazing. Okay. Uh, and George Best, obviously. George Best. Yeah. That's four, but there you go. You're allowed for it's your dinner party. Brian, just before we do sign off, uh, just a, a little reminder here <laughs> that you did promise on air, whoever reads or, or wins your book in our giveaway prize, that you will go to their house, lie in their bath. No, they lie in the bath. Or as I read it out bath. to them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so, so at least you're not denying it. Yeah. And you're going to go to their house and read yeah. them your book. Yeah, as long as they can bear it. As long as they can bear it. Yeah. Okay, right. No, I'm just confirming that you're a man of your word and you're going to stand by that. Okay, I promise you, uh, Brian Dooley, this is my final question to you. Um, I asked you at the start to give me your favourite song and we're going to ask you for your second song now and we're actually going to play out the podcast with your last song. So what is it and maybe why do you like this song? The best second generation Irish song. Um, not by the Pogues. Uh, Come on, Eileen by Dexys. Come on, Eileen by Dexys. Midnight. Kevin Rowland. Yeah, fantastic. Impossible to listen to without moving. And, and on that note, Mr. Brian Dooley, it has been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking with you today. Thank you very much for giving up your valuable time. And I certainly enjoyed the conversation, and I know uh, the shared Ireland listeners will as well. I did too, really. Thank you very much. It was great. Thank you for listening, folks. And if you do like our podcast, a like and a retweet would be appreciated. And also remember, if you retweet and leave a comment, you will be in with a chance of winning Brian's excellent book, Black and Green, which he has now promised me he's going to sign for a lucky listener. Thank you very much, folks. Take care. Bye-bye.